0: <laughs> is it range time already didn't we just have an episode last friday and here it is only six days later and there's a new episode why well, yes it's range back on a thursday my man ben Stuckert back for round two uh i am not not underscore not going to do a long introduction this week because i found myself digressing left and right as I was editing this episode. So there are plenty of Baumgarten asides, spoofs and goofs throughout the episode. I just wanna get into this right now because it's already pushed in an hour. And you know, I'm really trying to be mindful of your time, respectful. I'm a respectful person, I respect your time. I respect your agency, I respect your autonomy, I respect your intelligence. I also respect that we got a nice little thing going here with roughly hour long episodes and we wanna keep that going. Plus, I know a secret. I have a secret that you will learn soon. I'm actually going to let you know right now. I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. Why would I want to wait? Why would I want to keep the following smoldering hot policy wonkery from you any longer? Shh, take a
1: listen. Like you have to be really deliberate. Just like we talk about the laws we pass define the city we live in. And you have to create that it doesn't just happen organically.
0: Mm -mm, mm -mm -mm. Chef's kiss. All right. We'll follow that brain tingling amuse-bouche with the main course in a moment. But first we got to do a little palate cleanser. Again, the thing that I hate, I like making range. Hopefully you like listening to range. I want to continue making range so that you can continue listening to it. One of the uh, things we need to work on in order to make that happen is a, a sustainable business model for this this pungent melange of incisive analysis and uh, jocularity. You know, pure cask strength, righteous indignation cut with an effervescent spritzer of audio slapstick and other goofery. So yeah, if you like it, if you believe in it, please go over to rangemedia.co and support it. Secondly, thank you to the team at Speak Studios for helping with recording and post-production on this episode. We sound real good. We're going to keep doing them there. Speak Studios, it's downtown above Carhartt. The space is beautiful. The sound is great. It's all socially distanced, so you can do it safely in these uncertain times. Pretty convenient to get to. As we talk about in this episode, there's no shortage of surface parking in that area. Can't find housing. And all the one-ways discourage pedestrian traffic. But cars? Ooh, man, your car will slide right in there. You can get up, get in, get out, record your podcast. It's great. Super convenient. 530 West Main, speakpodcasting.com. And now, without further ado, part two of the chat with our buddy Ben. Began with public health... Now we're discussing housing. Ben Stuckert on housing, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 20, A House is a House of Cows of Cows? That doesn't make any sense. We wanted to talk a little bit about housing because that's another project you've been working on since you left, uh, left the council, right?
1: Yeah, it's what I love working on is we've got a housing crisis at the low income level. We've got a housing crisis on market rate housing. We've just put ourselves in a, a real bad spot here in Spokane.
0: And so, you know, because of coronavirus, we have this situation where there's an eviction moratorium that I think lasts through what, the end of December?
1: Yeah, and it expires. And I think we're looking at it's about 20% of people. And I heard another statistic I was reading online that somebody had posted that it's even much higher than that, that have partially paid. But so let's just take locally, you're about 18 to 20% of people are 30 days or more behind on their rent. And what do you do in the eviction moratorium? You can try to put somebody on a payment plan, uh, but where are they supposed to come up with that extra money? And so you're gonna see massive evictions happening unless we put money into rental assistance. And again, that's a failing of the county commissioners for not funding rental assistance. They have heard from plenty of folks that this needs to be a priority. And the only large chunk of dollars the city did as much as they could with their small um, CARES Act dollars amount, and then the Department of Commerce for Washington State put five point nine million in. But we calculate the need at well over thirty million right now, just in Spokane. Or yeah, just in Spokane. And the problem is, it's, it's this is a tenant problem. Who's going to get evicted? but it's also a landlord problem on like, take for example, I'm a nonprofit that builds low income housing. You might get housing vouchers for half of your residents, but half of your residents are just paying a reduced rent rate based on their income. And those people are where we're at 20% of not paying. And so I've taken out, sometimes you get subsidy um, to build affordable housing, but A lot of it is loans you've taken out and you owe the bank mortgages on these affordable housing complexes. So if you can't pay your mortgage on say 100 units in in Spokane, you're gonna then turn around and go bankrupt and you're gonna sell those 100 apartments to a for-profit person who's not gonna run it as affordable housing. So we're gonna see not only a lot of people getting evicted, we're gonna see apartments that are currently earmarked for affordable housing and the lowest income among us, the lowest 12% of our citizens. And that we're going to lose even more. This is going to compound itself. And the county commissioners could have put a hedge and put 10 million into this at the beginning, and we'd be in a much better spot. But it's such a large problem. We're going to also need the federal government to act. And our incoming lieutenant governor, uh, currently uh, Representative Heck, okay. has a really good bill, and it passed the House overwhelmingly. Um, And it would put a hundred billion dollars nationwide into rental assistance. It would be very impactful. I guess to me, that's why everybody needs to work really hard in Georgia right now, because if the Senate stays in Mitch McConnell's hands, we're not going to get a nationwide new cares bill big enough to cover rental assistance. And so if if we think to ourselves, wow, homelessness rose last year or this year, it's risen 15 to 20 percent when this eviction moratorium ends and people start getting evicted. We're in for a a real rude, rude awakening. And we've seen it coming and we know, and we've talked to all the elected officials and they just won't act.
0: And the real range heads will remember from a previous episode, Jeremy Logan, the, the DSA co-president who was uh, arrested by the sheriffs early in the year. He came into the public consciousness in Spokane because he was, and I don't know for a fact that his uh, apartment building was subsidized low income housing, but it was cheap enough that he could afford it at the time that sold to a different owner who basically doubled rents overnight, which is something that's totally legal. You can do. So if what you're saying is and that was one apartment complex on the lower South Hill that basically, I think like 60 or 70 people got evicted out of, or they weren't evicted there. It was like, you know, it's like that. It's like the, uh, you're, you're holding a gun to your head and saying like, you don't have to run, but then I'm going to pull the trigger. You know, it's like, you don't, you don't have to leave your apartment. I've just doubled rent on you. So you better give me twice as much rent as you were giving me last month or whatever. I'm going to evict you. That you're saying that that could be happening across the entire city. Yes. Because of the 20% of people that are behind in their rent, a much higher than proportional number is probably among that 12% of lowest of the people with the greatest need for housing assistance. And so it might not be 20% of those renters that are, you know, going to get evicted or, or just can't pay. And so these, these, uh, low income housing consortiums will go bankrupt on their loans. It might be 40%. It might be half of their renters. You know, it might be pretty much everybody that can't, that doesn't get the housing vouchers. That's what you're saying. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. And so then we have, and if you think, Uh, thinking back to the curing Spokane video, if you think we have a homeless problem downtown, you know, a problem with people who just don't have anywhere else to go and our shelters are already overcrowded and not getting less. So then we're going to have an absolute crisis on our hands.
1: Yeah. You shouldn't have mentioned that video now. I'm just angry. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He, he was fighting a proposal for more housing down in East Sprague as recently as this year.
0: All right, so I'm not going to name this developer or get into too much of the details because it's not really about an individual developer. It's about the tendency of people who develop property and how they tend to behave when it comes to housing. Developers, whether they are commercial or residential developers or whatever, like to develop for not necessarily the top of the market, but the most profitable part of the market, right? They're in it to make money, so they want to only develop things that will maximize their profits, generally speaking. Would it surprise you to learn that there is a perception in the world that a high concentration of houseless people depress land values and therefore make any development that might be happening or existing developments in those areas less profitable? The reality is very complicated, but that's the perception. So you have a situation where property developers are simultaneously funding ridiculous propaganda pieces decrying the scourge of houselessness in our downtown. This literally happened at the end of the uh, Bay Oral campaign last year. And then when a solution comes before, in this case, the same person who funded that video... A solution that would be like, hey, this low-income housing solution would actually help house some of the people and, you know, make this houseless problem downtown a little bit better. It wouldn't fix the whole problem, but it would help things. But because the proposed project is in a different neighborhood that the same developer has deep, deep investments in, he's like, no, we don't want to do that either. So there's a situation where, short of, I honestly don't know, putting every houseless person into a cannon and then firing them into the sun... I don't know what it would be a workable solution for the majority of these developers who are putting so much pressure and spending so much money to call attention to the problem. They don't like any of the solutions. So that's why, and I guess you got to be open to anything. But as we get talking later in the interview about market-based solutions, solutions that include, say, public-private partnerships between these very same profit-motivated developers, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply skeptical that that is going to be the final and total solution to our housing crisis because our housing crisis is going to necessarily involve Extremely low income people. And not only is there no profit to be made off of extremely low income people, there is a perception, and this would be a whole other digression, but there's a perception that extremely poor people diminish land values and they cause problems. That's not actually the case. That is not actually borne out by the data, but nonetheless, that's the perception. And so these developers want nothing to do with low income housing. Not only do they not want to take part in low income housing projects, they don't want low-income housing projects to exist anywhere near any of their properties and since the vast majority of the property in america is owned by somebody and generally owned by wealthy people then there is literally never a good place in the minds of the people that hold property landholders there is never a good place to put low-income housing period so yeah, let's talk about every single solution we can think of under the sun, including 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 those solutions that bypass the permission of the wealthiest people in our country, city, society. Ah. All right, back to it. So you talk about this in terms of like a three-legged stool. So there's the that and that's the first leg, so keeping people in their homes. So this yeah. is both this is both short-term rent help, but probably longer term, it's also tenant protections. It's like nice. basically making it harder for people to get evicted for frivolous reasons.
1: Yeah. So right now we're a state and city that has, you don't have to give a cause. You can just evict somebody, no cause given. And to me, that's, that's wrong. And the just cause laws that have been passed in cities and states around the country, they're pretty thorough list. Like you can, they're late, consistently late on paying rent. They can be evicted. If they, um, You know, don't follow the rules. You you can make it work for any community, and it's really interesting because the landlords just fight and fight and fight. um, Just cause ordinances, especially here in Spokane, and they really shouldn't be controversial. You can't, on one hand, stand up and constantly complain about homelessness, and then not support laws that say you just have to have a cause in order to evict somebody. It's it's basic human dignity. And a part of our problem on housing in a larger sense is we come at this as if it's a commodity yeah. instead of coming at housing as if wouldn't it be nice as a community if we just decided everybody should have a roof over their head. And to take this back to public health, public health is really starting to look at affordable housing as a, it's a social determinant of health is how they call it, because you can't take care of anything else healthy in your life. If you don't have a roof over your head and it's Maslow's hierarchy, right? Unless you meet your basic needs, you're not going to take care of any of your higher
0: needs. And that's one of the, one of the big sort of foundational premises of housing first for people, people who are struggle with substance abuse and homeless folks is like, they're not going to be able to quit their habit until you give those, those basic needs met. Right. So giving them a house is a first step to getting them off of drugs or, or whatever the, the issue is. Yeah. And whatever the
1: issue is, any issue, you have to meet those basic needs, be fed a place to lie down at night that's yours. And if you don't, you're setting yourself up for failure. And that that failure can be morally, that failure can be economically. The economic case for providing housing is so much cheaper than all the emergency rooms and police and fire department and other problems that come on with it. But it's because we don't look at it as a human right a roof over your head. And that's where I don't, those conversations are really tough when somebody just says, nah, you don't have a right to a roof over your head. And you're like, but you're yelling at me about homelessness, but you don't have enough housing. And so, so that first stool is keeping people in their houses, whether that's through tenant protections, rental assistance. And when I talk about a three-legged stool, it's because if you don't do all of these, the stool falls down. The second stool, is subsidy. And that means we need rental vouchers, vouchers to help people pay their rent, or you need to subsidize the building of affordable housing. And that's really what my job has been in the last eight months is advocating for the city council to pass um, a local housing levy. And uh, if we're lucky, this, this probably won't be published by then, but they're voting on Monday on the housing levy and it'll be the culmination of everything I've been doing this year. And uh, pretty excited about it. Uh, We'll see how they vote. I was never good when I was in office at counting votes, and I'm not now either. So
0: that legislation did, in fact, pass. Thank God for small favors. Uh, And I'll provide a link to the story in the show notes.
1: But you have to provide subsidy. And the federal government and the state government have been cutting back and cutting back and cutting back. And so we just don't have enough um, affordable, low-income housing in Spokane a normal community that somebody would say is thriving and what the norm is for the percentage of your housing stock yeah. that is low income, so subsidized, yeah. is 20%. Okay. We're at 11%. We have about half of the low income housing we should for a community our size and for the amount of poverty there is in Spokane. And we used to have cheap market rate, of, we were talking about Jeremy Logan and how that lower the lower South Hill apartments. Yeah. And the market rate housing used to be low enough that you didn't need the 20% of low income housing because you could find cheap market rate apartments, but that's no longer the
0: case. And that's the third leg. I lived in an attic in Brown's edition for like $300 a month in 2006 or five or something like that. Right,
1: And so it was workable then when you're younger and you can find apartments. I found, I lived in on 10th street. I lived on eighth street. Up by Huckleberries. I lived up by Huckleberries for a while, and then I lived way over by where Wisconsin Burger is now. Okay. But those were all priced at that time when I was younger that you'd almost consider it low income housing because they were just it was market just rate housing, was so cheap.
0: Yeah, totally. And that's also not to not to jump in here, but that's also where a lot of like our immigrant and refugee communities end up housed through the World Relief and stuff like that. So this is this isn't this is about you know resettlement efforts we have helping people get on their feet kind of across the board you know
1: so this brings me to the third leg of the stool which is your regulatory and your zoning so when i say zoning i mean most everybody probably listening knows what zoning is but we have single family zones which are you can't build anything else except for
0: single-family homes in those zones. Yeah, so more generally, zoning is just like what a city or a municipality or whatever, a governing body decides what kind of buildings can be built in what kind of, in certain neighborhoods or certain places, right? And so what we have is a lot of single-family zoning.
1: Yeah, and we've, we look at the housing crisis, and we're like, how did we get here? Well, we passed a Growth Management Act, and it's been working great. We're, we don't want to expand our urban areas and keep sprawling out. as was to control right. sprawl. So you can't add land to the urban growth area without having studies and a thoughtful process and do you need the land. But what the Growth Management Act assumed was is that if cities didn't spread out, they would go up. Because you're going to need more housing. Your population is rising. And there's people arriving in Spokane. People have kids. Our population rises. But we're not growing up. Because there's a thing called NIMBY, not in my backyard, and they're very strong in all of Washington and don't want those suburban single-family homes with large yards. They don't want anything to change. And so what single-family zoning is called exclusionary zoning because it excludes everything except for single-family homes. And what other communities, Minneapolis, the mayor in my conversations with him is where I learned to talk about it as a three-legged stool. He eliminated single family zoning in Minneapolis and Portland just did the same thing. And where you now can build a variety of housing types in single family zones. And that's, we need to not just build a variety of housing types, but we also need more density and we need more density along Our comprehensive plan, as the city of Spokane, says we embrace a center and corridor strategy. So that's like the Perry Street Business District or Monroe. We have single family homes surrounding those business districts. So you don't have enough people to support the business districts. So it's not long-term solvency for those business districts. They're all going to die unless we put more people near them because business districts don't survive on just cars driving to them, you need people to walk to those businesses. And there's like so many benefits of density. Places that are more dense have less crime because there's more eyes on the street. Businesses do better with density because you have people that can walk there. They're healthier because people are walking. It's a better sense of community because people see each other all the time. Your sales tax revenue goes up when those businesses thrive and so you have better public services that we all share like police and fire. And we know
0: like these, these, well, and and it makes all those, it makes, it makes every inch of infrastructure you build cheaper too. Because one of the problems, I actually, I need to have this guy back on this pod because I interviewed him on a different pod. uh, Spencer Gardner, like one of the things that was great. One of the things that like the strong towns people talk about is that what we did unintentionally, but inevitably when we built the suburbs is we took houses that are mostly sort of long front to back and kind of packed together, you know, like I've got a, I've got a fit. My, my house is on a 50 foot lot, 45 foot lot. Uh, and we, when we built the suburbs, we made all these lots a hundred feet wide or 120 feet wide. That means every single family unit pays Three times as much as I pay for to maintain my my little the length of sewer and the length of uh, electrical and the length of any infrastructure we have in front of my in, in front of my house. Which means that even if you want to live in a McMansion in Indian Trail, you should like density somewhere else. And ideally, like you're saying, along a center or a corridor close to close to bus you know lanes and transit where people can take the bus. if They don't want to have a car. That's that's like my heaven because it's going to make all of the accumulated infrastructure cheaper because we tra- we don't charge people by the the width of their front yard we just charge them for the the stuff they use and so rates go up and down so there's there's a there's like the environmental impact of a growth boundary there's the oh I don't want our you know our beautiful untamed spaces that we have around Spokane to just get gobbled up by subdivisions there's like the bleeding heart environmental part of that but there's also it's like we're going to be facing an infrastructure crisis, the way that we're facing a you know like a public health crisis at the moment. Like it's going, the system's going to eventually just break and bankrupt bankrupt itself unless we start building up, and that has those impacts aren't just for the people that now suddenly have an affordable place to live. It's kind of for everybody. Am I wrong? Am I right about that? You're right on every account. Spencer's a smart guy. Um,
1: yeah. There's just numerous, it's whatever your viewpoint is, it makes sense to densify downtown. We have 76 vacant parking lots. Right. Uh, what, like that's the absolute worst use of land, but our state state law says you, you have to have uniform uh, property taxes. So you, we can't do without a state law change, a highest and best use tax, which would say you pay to the best use of that land as a disincentive for somebody owning a parking lot and collecting money from Diamond because that dead space could be housing. We could put 7,000 more units downtown if we just built up on those vacant parking lots and we would solve our problem and it would stop the massive rise in rents that would slow down to a normal rate. We've really screwed up and shot ourselves in the foot and we sit here and go, well, why do we have a housing crisis? And then you have things like happened Monday at the city council meeting where they turned down a rezone of a, I don't even know what it was originally zoned, either office or single family, but it's in the middle of a bunch of apartments. And they said, no, no, it's too much for traffic. This is like up 57th and Regal. Yeah, 53rd. And I understand traffic's bad up there, but we're in a housing crisis and we need every single unit possible, both market rate and low income, if we're going to get out of this. And I understand you want to stay in your neighborhood. You bought a house there and you want it to stay the same, but sorry, life's changing and we better accept change or we're all going to be priced out of living in our own community. And then we're going to all end up living in Liberty Lake and the tax base is going to disappear and people are going to wonder what happened to Spokane. It's also self-perpetuating because we don't, we listen to the um, loudest people get heard the most, but those are the people that have the most time and the most to lose and want to keep the status quo and we just don't do a good job of forcing the issue so it really it's almost like the state is considering making changes that density changes like just so cities can't keep fighting it because somebody's got to do something or we're not going to get out of this housing crisis.
0: And it's, and and this, I know, I think you and I probably have a slightly different opinion on developers as a group, but it's like when your only incentive is economic and you're living in the capitalist system that we have in America, there is currently an incentive for every single one of those people that own those 76 or 73 parking lots downtown. They have made the, the financial, the economic calculation that it is the most profitable thing they can do is keep that just a scab of asphalt in the middle of our vibrant downtown. What you're talking about is and this was a, a thing that got brought up a few years ago when there was all those the the sort of the final volley of the demolitions that happened on buildings downtown, like the rookery block. And right after that. Right. Basically, it was a demolition moratorium. But then there were these other conversations like we sh- what we should be doing is taxing this lot to its highest use because here's the thing you got to provide an incentive or a disincentive to the status quo if you feel like you you want a developer who's going to be ultimately driven by the bottom line to make a different decision in favor of something like actually doing something rather than doing nothing right because like one of the one of the reasons is for these parking lots is like you hire diamond parking to run this thing for you and you just cash checks and you don't even think about it. Right. That's all like, literally that's the easiest thing you could do as a landowner. You're just collecting rent. So what you need to be able to do, and this wouldn't be a a state law change that needs to happen is like, say like, you know what? You can keep your parking lot. If you want Obama voice, if you like your parking lot, you can keep it, but we're going to tax it. Like it's a 10 story apartment building. Yep. So you can, so now that changes the economic calculus to be like, oh, shit, maybe I should build some apartments and make some more money.
1: Yeah, and you could also use the the Downtown Spokane Partnership, which manages the Business Improvement District. They do a, a fee based on whether you're an office or a condo or an apartment. And you could add in there because they do charge per parking spot, but it's like so minimal it doesn't matter you could say if you got a surface parking lot we're going to charge you in the bid fees like $300 a spot a year yeah. and keep the $10 a spot for the covered parking lots um and there's lots of things we could do but they're all you know when i tried to um there's a height limit along uh, riverfront park just on half of those lots only this like one half you could have unlimited so you could build a 100 story skyscraper right next door to uh like say auntie's or right next door to where we're at the bennett block the part that faces maine could be a hundred stories high but then the half that fronts spokane falls boulevard has to be a hundred feet tall it makes absolutely zero sense because everybody's argument is is you don't want shade on riverfront park
0: You're trying to keep the the beauty of Riverfront Park intact, but there's ways to get around that. But by
1: putting a 100-foot limit, what we've done is this is another instance of shooting yourself in the foot, is it's not economical for a developer to build a 100-foot tall building. It doesn't pencil out. So you get these parking lots right along the park. And then I don't know how many arguments I got in with people that normally support my position, but I want development downtown, not vacant parking lots. And they fought it so hard that the rest of council got scared off. And even though we'd done a planning commission, had done a study, they'd formed a work group, came back with recommendation to lift the height limits and get rid of them. We met with developers that could build really cool housing. Like imagine having an apartment that overlooks the carousel. And But everybody got scared off because Oh no, we can't, can't change
0: those laws. And you're like, come on. And let's not forget that the most famous park in the world, right? Central Central Park. Park, I don't think there's a building around Central Park that's less than a hundred feet. Every building around Central Park is a massive condo or apartment building because that's like the most valuable real estate in that city, in, in one of the most expensive cities in the world. We can't honestly look at ourselves and
1: say, we're not willing to sacrifice a height limit, but we care about housing and
0: we really care about the homeless problem. Bullshit. Yeah, right. Sorry. That's no, fine. We just, we swear here all the time. No. Although my mom told me she's listened to some of my episodes and she wants me to swear less. So <laughs> mom, if you keep listening to this, I've been trying to be a good boy today. I think that was my first time swearing. So, <laughs> um,
1: but no, we complain about a lot, but we refuse to implement the changes necessary to actually change the situation. And so, in my mind, the state laws on a lot of these like, oh, yeah, our code the city of Spokane says we allow ADUs. But then you go take that code and meet with a developer and they're going to give you 10 easy changes that should have been made 10 years ago if we really wanted to allow them. And we just don't. And it's because of NIMBYs. And a lot of it's because people don't want mixed income neighborhoods. They think that apartments and low income housing is going to equal more crime and things that are just factually untrue. And they want their suburban style neighborhood. But you don't get a suburban style neighborhood
0: everywhere in town and not have a housing crisis. Well, and here's the thing that's so just like absolute bullshit, sorry, mom, on the face of that argument is, well, let's say what, what, what were the first two actual cool neighborhoods in Spokane? It was probably, it was Garland maybe in the nineties. And then it was like uh, and Brown's Edition's always been pretty cool. Brown's edition is actually still relatively mixed income <laughs> that attic apartment. I could get, I couldn't get it for 300 bucks anymore, but it's still probably 600 bucks. And so that one of the most vibrant and, and consistently vibrant neighborhoods in Spokane, cause there's always like the, the chance that like, if we don't Act on housing policy, the vibrancy that we see in Perry District could potentially go away. Let's stay here for just a second. See, this is why I didn't want to do a long intro because I'm going to just keep interrupting myself. I keep having all these thoughts uh, as I'm listening back to it, but let's pause one more second on Brown's edition as an example of what would happen in a good scenario with these neighborhoods that we love, like Perry District. And if we ever want East Sprague to become more than it is, why we need density. So think about the Elk. Think about Italia Trattoria. Think about before Italia Trattoria, Cafe Marone. Oh God, and before Cafe Marone, do you guys remember Cannon Street Grill? I love that place. That place was so great. And that was when I think historically you would have said Brown's Edition was a little bit of a... uh, to quote our uh, soon-to-be former president, shithole. So we have sort of a chicken-egg problem here. Is it the cool restaurant that made the neighborhood cool, or was it the cool neighborhood that made for a cool restaurant? I actually think it was neither of those things. It was density. A certain level of density allowed a really cool restaurant to thrive in a place that had been traditionally thought of as not worthy of the chattering classes. Okay, now think about whatever the name of the coffee shop is that's on the corner which isn't the best coffee shop in the world. It's kind of, it's like a C-tier chain. Those businesses have all flourished. The exceptional community, you know, community-focused businesses like Italia and the Elk. And then like the rant, that coffee shop changes hands. It was like a Tully's for a while. Like that business was more stable, I think, and sort of pointing to Ben's idea because not only is... Brown's edition, a mixed income neighborhood. It's also one of our denser neighborhoods because all of those massive, you know, robber baron mansions, a lot of them got cut up into five, six, seven, eight unit apartment buildings, like that one that I lived in the attic of. And there's a lot of really awesome, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten unit mid-century apartment buildings, too, that are actually pretty cool. I lived in the Coronet, I think is what it was called as well. That was a badass big Two bedroom that was like 800 bucks a month. I don't know what it is now. It's probably more because it's a pretty nice place. Like when you have that much density in your neighborhood and you want to start a restaurant, you're literally pulling from a much deeper and more connected potential user base when you're in a dense, diverse income neighborhood. And this isn't just like hippy dippy shit. Sorry, mom. Greenstone developers, Larry, sorry, Jim Frank, Jim Frank talks at length about the way developments like Kendall yards. And there's, a, I'm not going to remember it and I don't want to look it up. The development he did in Coeur he's wanted to put a grocery store into for like a decade, but they've never been able to reach They're You know, they're starting from a very low density neighborhood in the, like the Coeur suburbs and trying to build it all up themselves. They've never been able to reach the density where he felt confident putting in a supermarket. Meanwhile, at Kendall Yards, which has its problems and I can, you know, I could probably go off for a 15 minutes on the, you know, the ambitious failings of Kendall Yards, but because that neighborhood is sited close to more dense neighborhood and he built density into his own neighborhood and then there's the additional density of the surrounding West Central, my fresh basket happened in only a couple years. So yes, this is both bleeding heart housing policy, making sure we take care of our neighbors who don't have the same means we do. But it's also the only way to get the sort of robust economic development in our neighborhoods that we have been literally dining out on for the last 10 years. If you like Perry District and you want it to stick around, we're going to need to build density similar to or probably greater than Brown's Edition. Because Perry works right now because everybody wants to go there and drive there and have their experiences, or at least they did before the pandemic. But what happens when North Monroe really takes off and all of a sudden there's two neighborhoods vying for, like, hippest neighborhood status? It's going to be harder and harder and harder to keep splitting the hip diehards willing to travel. The only way you're going to be able to create a sustainable neighborhood that persists and that also maybe makes business a little bit less risky for people who want to start neighborhood businesses is density. Period. If you want East Sprague, which is one of the coolest commercial strips in Spokane, but has historically been my entire life run down, you've got to build dense housing. Because think about the geography of East Sprague. The geography of East Sprague has three blocks, I think, south of East Sprague. The freeway completely cuts off the neighborhood from the rest of basically Perry District. And north, a couple blocks, is a railroad viaduct that cuts it off, except for like, you know, a couple little corridors. There's an underpass on like Helena Street, cuts it off from the neighborhood north of it. So there is it's hard to get there and there's inadequate housing there. So how can we expect a neighborhood that's as vibrant as Brown's Edition to grow up in a place where there's no housing like East Sprague? It's just not reasonable. It's not conceivable. It'll never happen. So, again, Obama voice. If you like Perry District, you can keep it. You've just got to build density. That was like a multi-course bacchanal of a digression, so I don't even remember where we're at. Let's uh, let's back it up a little bit and return to the interview. <coughs> Obama voice. Nope, back a little further. <coughs> the vibrancy that we see in Perry District could potentially
1: go away. Oh, I think we're seeing it in the last two years where you have um, the new building that opened up and it's half empty still 2 years later and then you have uh, Darren Chu's building um, where Highs Market used to be right. empty and you're going to continue to see that until we put more people living near Perry Street and the biggest worry in my mind is is the 8 million dollars that was really controversial that we spent on Monroe and oh look oh you create a walkable environment and oh 14 new businesses opened within a year Business has improved. All the people that
0: opposed it say, yeah, it's better. Even the, even the existing business owners who were literally it. like painting Hitler mustaches on fake pictures of you on specifically Tisler. Ben. Yeah. On Facebook they're they've grudgingly said now, Oh yeah, that was, it, this was good. Yeah.
1: But the problem is all these new businesses open and sales taxes increased in that area because more people are going there because street, whoa, street improvements work, walkability works. But 10 years from now, if we don't have density around there and it's continued to be surrounded by single family homes, we will see a drop in the businesses and a drop in the sales tax because you cannot survive a business district on all cars driving to it and single family homes surrounding it. It's just not economically possible
0: and we've got to get ourselves out of that trap. So we've we've sort of come to the conclusion, even the skeptics, that, you know, it's good to invest in walkable infrastructure in uh, in business districts. But the second prong of that attack needs to be dense, denser housing around those districts, because, again, one of the things that even among in Perry and in Brown's edition, neighbors get mad when there's a bunch of people parking on the streets in front of their house. This was a huge problem up in like Audubon when, uh, what, Down, down River Grill and, and yeah. the Flying Goat. Like, oh my gosh. People was... that are up in those, you know, those really early pre-war, they're kind of suburbs, but they're part of the city. They, you know, they flip out because like the people are driving to these places because, you know, it's not on a good transit route or because there's not enough density to fill these restaurants with people who actually live in the neighborhood. Whereas, you know, You could walk if you've got a restaurant in your neighborhood and then there's a there's a hundred unit apartment building on the other corner like that. That apartment building is going to feed that restaurant in a way that an entire neighborhood is going to have a hard time feeding, you know, the, the similar the similar density of businesses, I guess. You mentioned parking, though, real quick. Parking is a huge
1: issue, and up until the 1950s, nowhere did any city code in the United States mandate parking as part of a development requirement. And so some urban planner in Iowa (music) Iowa. decided in early 1950s to add it into the code that when you build houses and businesses, you have to provide off-street parking. And that was one of the biggest failures of our planning is how we've meshed that into because like if you build a house, it costs an extra twenty five thousand dollars to add a garage. So you've added all this cost on and not everybody drives
0: and garages take up space and people want their backyard. So it also adds to lot sizes, too.
1: Yeah. And it, it, it makes it ridiculous because if you walk up and down Perry Street or Garland, those business districts are so thriving because those businesses are up against the sidewalk and they take up the whole block back to the alley. And we've got stupid floor area requirements now that would make Perry Street and garland impossible to build between our parking requirements and between our floor area requirements that say you need all this open space when you build some we've just really taken a suburban mindset and overlaid it on top of even neighborhoods that were built correctly back in the day right so
0: we took the the suburbs sort of say north of Francis or whatever or even north of like Wellesley and and south of wherever I'm, I'm a north side boy so I know the north side better but like and say south of 29th. The, the, the suburbs that we built in the mid-century until today, we then sort of took those same zoning standards and retroactively applied them to our old neighborhoods. Right. Spencer Gardner, the guy we were just talking about, one of the reasons he moved to Spokane, he actually works for a company based in Madison, Wisconsin. One of the reasons he moved to Spokane was he was looking for a city with a pre-war grid, not just because it's like cool old buildings, but because they have the sort of infrastructure he's looking for as a city planner or as it's just a planner. He's a transit planner to be like, oh, there can be vibrancy here because the suburbs exclude vibrancy. The way that they're zoned, the way that they're built. My parents live near Whitworth. They're not even in like the exurbs. They're in the, like the, I would say the core sort of Spokane suburbs. The very delicious Taste of Thai restaurant up by Mead High School was the closest food when I lived with my parents briefly after college. And it was basically a mile hike. And a a mile hike along suburban streets that don't have sidewalks.
1: Yeah, who, who decided when it was okay to stop building sidewalks? What a mess for community, for safety, for everything is when you live in a neighborhood without sidewalks. What a flipping disaster. So So just real quick, Buffalo, New York, five years ago, eliminated all parking requirements in their city code. Just got rid of it. You know what they haven't
0: had? Any problems? Uh, Buffalo, along with Pittsburgh and like uh, Detroit and stuff, that's the, when you're seeing like these urban renaissance cities, Buffalo is one of those cities. And I think oh, that's yeah. you can't you can't separate the policies that we're doing at our city level from like this vibrancy. Like it, you, it takes a population of people who give a shit about it to want to buy into it. But you also then have to respond with, you know, the proper regulations to make these things possible.
1: Yeah, where we're sitting right now, there's a one-way street. Our busiest retail street in Spokane is Maine, and it's a one-way street. One-way streets are designed to take you from A to B as fast as possible. One-way streets are not designed to have you stop. The biggest thing Spokane could do is get rid of the one-ways downtown right now. Get rid of all parking requirements all over the city. Uh, eliminate single family zoning and get rid of these one way streets. So, but
0: Betsy Coles will never let that two way main happen. And you're spilling tea today. I like it. Um, so I, I got, um, I've been looking, I've been holding my phone for a couple minutes here. Cause I got just out of the blue from a friend of mine who does not want to be named <laughs> uh, statistics on Washington state department of licensing, out of state license, basically data summary of the last since looks like September, 2018, so this, this is the question that I, we, t- we chatted about a little bit yesterday and I wanna like uh, dig in on here and then we'll get to the hope question that we always do. But we've talked a lot about market-based solutions so far and pu- you know stuff that would be like subsidized housing, public-private partnerships. I, and this is where I think you and I might differ a little bit on uh, ultimate solutions here, but I really wanna have this conversation because right now, according to the Department of Licensing, since 2018, since September of 2018, so basically two years ago, we have added 20,000 new licenses to Spokane County. It's a little bit less than a thousand new licenses. So people that are old enough to drive a month moving to Spokane. Hey, it's me again. I just wanted to put a really fine point on this. This is people coming in from out of state and getting new Washington licenses. This does not include people who already have Washington licenses or are just moving in from somewhere else in the state. So there is a Seattle sized hole, there is a Tacoma sized hole, there is an Olympia and Tri City sized hole in this data. There are a thousand people moving to Spokane County every month from out of state. Out of state. And how much new housing are we building? How much new housing is the free market giving us? Enough to take care of all of these transplants and our low-income neighbors? Question mark? The sort of the prevailing idea about market-based housing solutions is that, again, like when you're building a house, capitalism incentivizes building the most expensive house possible that that your market can afford. But the prevailing wisdom is that it'll trickle down. You build a bunch of really nice houses. All the rich people move out of their middle houses into these nicer houses and the housing stock gets better and a little bit cheaper and there's more of it. So that eventually like that rising tide will lift all boats and the poorest people will end up getting slightly better housing or just having Having access to housing if you have a housing crisis. And just to be clear, I'm deeply skeptical of this story, this theory of market economics in the best of times, to say nothing of the current predicament. The problem, though, in a situation with like Spokane, is that if you've got a thousand people moving to your town a month, and we're not we're not building nearly a thousand units of housing a month, the people that are moving in from largely you know cities and states that where stuff's a lot more expensive than Spokane can just gut the middle, high, low. They're taking every aspect of that market to buy houses. We're ne- we're not ever, in my, it doesn't seem to me, and maybe you can see a way through this, we're never going to touch the low income housing population unless we do something other than a market-based solution. Do you see that happening?
1: I guess there's three things here. One is, is you always need the subsidy leg to build more of the bottom 20%. So it's the market takes care of the top 80%. And I guess I'm saying the bottom 20% has to be subsidized no matter how many market rate houses you build. doesn't matter. You need the 20% to have public subsidy to live there and to build. But this 80% and the University of California, Berkeley did a good study, I think it was late 2018 and they call it the Kevin Bacon housing study. Is how it's referred to. And so they studied like a hundred different examples in the Bay area of people buying a $500,000 brand new home. And it did free up four or five levels below them because people moved up. But what their study didn't take into account is exactly what you're talking about that Kevin Bacon theory works. If you have a static population, that's if you have a hundred people and I build one at the top. And it stays at a hundred people, your musical chairs. But if you have a hundred people and you build this one at the top and you also have 10 people move in, one of these 10 people that moves in can just grab that one and you don't free anything up.
0: And so it doesn't help. And And those nine other people are probably buying houses somewhere in the middle of the market, which is raising costs on everything, which means the lower people might actually get pushed into homelessness. Yes, absolutely. So
1: we've got to take care of the bottom 20%. We've got to put protections in place that keep people in their current housing so they don't end up homeless. And then we've got to massively rezone things. We've got to allow ADUs. We've got to eliminate the barriers like parking rules. Like when I talk about housing policy, I'm I'm a I'm a libertarian housing guy on some of these rules. Like I I seriously, like when I talk to people, they're just like, you're a progressive socialist. And I'm like, I'll have conversations with large groups of people and I'll be like just get rid of the ha- the parking rules we should deregulate the parking and they flip out because they don't really don't know how to respond because parking is something that they're like total socialists about right they want to yeah. they want those parking regulations even though they're like dumb and there's no argument for it, for them other than they don't want parking on the street or they don't want to have to walk a block yeah All I know is, is if we keep people in their housing, we build more low income housing and we radically change, you know, in zoning changes, like if we take Monroe and say you went two blocks off of Monroe and rezoned it from single family to multifamily, that's a 10 to 20 or probably 20 year change because people are going to not just move out of their single family homes. They're going to age out. They'll, they, somebody may move and a developer may buy it, but it's going to take a long time for somebody to conglomerate the land to build up uh, multifamily housing. So this problem is here with us for a long time. And there is no one solution. People will try to tell you it's all just market rate housing. Or you'll have low income housing people. It's just about building low income housing. Or if you talk to the tenants union, it's all about those tenant protections. We all need to be advocating for all of the solutions.
0: We, we don't have the boldness right now to solve the problem. Last question before we get to the hope question. Uh, why? So I, I grew up, I saw the movie Candyman as a child, the Cabrini Green housing projects, I think in Chicago, like at my entire life, there's been a massive American stigma against public housing. Just and to be clear, public housing is just like housing that the government pays for and gives to poor people. Or, you know, let's at a subsidized rate, poor people live in massively stigmatized in America. Massively. Can't even do it anymore. Even in places where it's been done, it's been undone. Uh, New York, Chicago, places like that. In Europe, by contrast, there are rich people trying to get into public housing in Denmark and in Scandinavia because they're cool ass houses. They do them really well. And they have a setup where, you know, there's, you know, in New York, you have like rules where it's like, you have to let certain number of poor people into your rich people's building in in places where public housing is done well, the opposite happens where, you know, wealthier, like people who want to downsize, who want to retire, who want to like, you know, age in place are moving, in, are paying a higher level to help subsidize the, the public housing for the people who need it. Why can't we do that in America? Maybe that's too big of a question to end on. We'd probably be here for another hour. But like what the, what is it going to take for us to sort of look at these things differently? I don't know. Luke. People won't wear masks. <laughs>
1: We're at over a thousand people dying a day. Like, I just even go back to like nine eleven. We flipped out and invaded two countries when three thousand people died in those towers. And now that many? now, now there's no. a nine eleven every two days. Every two days, we're having that number of people die, and we literally can't just put on a goddamn mask. Sorry, Luke's mom. I apologize, but we can't put on masks to save other people. So I. I don't know what it's going to take to change uh, people's opinion about living near poor people. But I just think to me, mixed income neighborhoods are like, it's like riding the bus, right? You ride the bus and you meet all sorts of different types of people. You go into a corner grocery store in a mixed income neighborhood and you run into all different types of people. And then what happens is it's really hard to demonize anybody. Once you've interacted with them and realized that they're just like you, but having a little bit of down luck or something wrong went, went off in their personal life and they've suffered some trauma and nobody's helped them with their trauma, but you realize that we're all in this together and then you stop demonizing people, you stop this, oh, they're homeless because it's their fault. Instead, wow, we're in a community, we're going to take care of each other. So mixed income neighborhoods to me are the core of where we need to get. I don't know how to get there other than just keep talking to people, keep talking about it. We just need to be a lot better with how we treat each other. And that's going to all these other things follow.
0: Part of the reason I've really leaned into doing this project is like, how depressed I've gotten at our national politics, is just depressing as hell. And, and local politics, as we've talked about for half this episode, are depressing too. But at least I feel like I can have some sort of impact on those. But then conversations like this, where you where you're talking about infrastructure, you're talking about national, local, you know, regional housing policy and and like decisions we made 50, 60, 70 years ago and then didn't even think about the impacts of like literally like the size of people's yards responding to an honest and earnest need. Like, I want a big yard, you know, I want that white picket fence life. makes me think that like, yeah, okay. So we do need to be engaging at all these levels. You can't just retreat into, okay, let's just fix locally because there's going to be, it's going to be impacted by any number of policies at a state and regional and and national level, whatever. So all that said, you know, and you just, you, you fought a tough election a year ago and you know, and you've spent a year as a private citizen, like what with all, and and you're still very active. You didn't take any time off as far as I can tell. So you still must have some hope. So what, what gives you hope on a day-to-day basis right now?
1: gives me hope that I worked for six months. My first, uh, consulting job, um, after I was done, um, was getting hired by the campaign that worked on fluoridation of the water, which is another public health issue that literally shouldn't be that controversial at all. It's really weird, but I think, uh, I read the paper today and they're uh, in the process of hiring the consultant to, uh, move forward. And once, that money is spent, then they'd have to pay back the Arcora Foundation, which isn't ever gonna happen. So we're on the road um, to fluoridating our water, which I, gives me hope. Um, the council is voting on a housing levy, which will be local dollars for the first time ever for low-income housing, and they're voting on that on Monday. And I'm pretty sure it's gonna pass. I don't know how overwhelmingly it'll pass, but it will pass. Um, and I've been working on that. I even when I wasn't working for the low income housing consortium in January, I went and testified on this bill because I'd worked on it the previous year while I was on city council. Like it's literally, this is a culmination. I formed a working group around a local housing levy in January of 2017. And that culmination of that work and votes going to be on November 30th of 2020. So that's like three years worth of work. And so that gives me hope. The fact that you're now doing this range project in media in Spokane uh, because our other media outlets are not um, to me up to par. So it's really been exciting talking to you about this project and seeing it start to take off. I think that gives me hope. I appreciate that. Yeah. And you and Ginger with the work you've done over the years on terrain, you know, serving on that board was a complete honor. And just to see you come back and really very deliberately talk about revitalizing the city. So it's not just org- like, you have to be really deliberate. Just like we talk about the laws we pass define the city we live in. And you have to create that. It doesn't just happen organically. So there are a lot of things that give me hope. I also have really depressed days. Losing an election does suck. It's like a huge ego blow. Yeah, um, I can only really imagine. Like the somebody the other day was like, oh, you've become so relaxed. And I'm like, I just snapped at him and I'm like, Oh, so me publicly being humiliated uh, made me more relaxed. Thanks a lot. I was like, <laughs> there's, you know, and people are constantly asking, you know, you, yeah, I don't know how you, how you feel about it or if you're ever going to be in politics again. And you just want to say, don't remind me. Like,
0: <laughs> Thank so you, like, but never talk about
1: it again. Right. That's an ego shatter. Publicly getting your ego beaten up is a hard thing, but there's a lot of things to be hopeful for.
0: I want to say one, one of the things that I, that made me hopeful, and this is now probably eight years, eight years, uh, in the, in the rear view mirror, I was not, I'm going to be honest, man. So I recruited Ben to the board of the arts organization terrain, uh, as he was a a founding board member. What my, what gave me hope in that moment, I didn't realize it until years later was wrote you an email. I was an arts and culture writer. I was not really paying much attention to the city government or whatever, Somebody suggested you would be good for this board. I wrote you an email to like your city email address and you, we met at LK and over the course of, I think like two Takatis each, you were like, I've never met you before. I don't know who you are. This train thing sounds pretty cool. I'm on 16 other boards and I'll join yours. It'll be great. And whenever I have conversations with friends who are in doing similar work in Seattle or Portland, one of the things that's so incredible about Spokane and when people say, oh, terrain's like a Seattle thing or a Portland, it's a it's cool enough to be in these cities, like but it couldn't happen in those cities. It might be thank you for saying it's cool enough to be part of those cities. We could not have done terrain in in a city where you couldn't We sent a letter to Mayor Verner asking for a uh, a letter of non objection for the liquor control board because we screwed up our liquor license one year. And we had we had that letter within, you know, the next day, pick it up down at City Hall It was on the, the her assistant's desk. So I think that if I don't know what's going to solve these problems, but I th- the hope that I have is that at least locally, we are still in a place where we can have conversations like this. And you know, precocious 27 year olds can send a random email to a, a city council person and get a reply back. And, and so that gives me hope. And, and I think as long as we keep having these conversations, cause you're right, you can't, you can't get away from conversations with libertarians or conservative people in this town because there's enough of them that nothing could get done in Spokane if you didn't have those conversations. So you try to have them in good faith and then you have to call them out when it's not good faith. And it still feels like possible to make big problems move, even if those problems move slowly. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ben. No, thanks for having me
1: on, Luke. Sorry, Luke's mom for swearing. Her name is Teresa. Teresa, I'm sorry. Thanks,
0: Ben. I think I'm going to record that to my sound pad. And then rather than like bleeping out swear words, I'm just going to go. Teresa, I'm sorry. Teresa, I'm sorry. Take that, Mom. Thank you, Ben Stuckert, for coming on the show. Thank you for swearing more than I did. So her ire can be directed at somebody but me. Uh, I love talking with Ben because it's not like he glosses over the problems. In fact, he gets righteously indignant at the problems. Uh, And he's a person whose righteous indignation has a cleansing sort of fire that somehow makes me feel better at the end of the conversation. So hopefully it made you feel better too. I will say, like a true frickin' politician... He sort of skipped over my social housing question. And this is something I'm going to come back to. This is why this cannot be the only conversation we ever have about housing. And actually, social housing is probably the furthest, the last thing we'll be able to do because there are like literally, there's like a literally a federal law limiting social housing in America because we're so scared of the Rooskies. And again, this is where legislation that it's enacted like 50 years ago during the Red Scare or whatever continues to impact housing policy to this day, right? Laws we pass now, literally like buildings we build, right? Buildings last 50, 60, 70, 100 years. Buildings we build today are going to affect our grandkids. Policy that was enacted by our grandparents still affects us. It's like these invisible and not so invisible, but largely unremarked upon power structures that get put in place are very, very hard for subsequent generations to undo when they want to undo them. So yes, first housing discussion of many. Let me know what you think about it. Uh, Like, share, subscribe, whatever. (laughs) Tell your friends about range. And this is another thing that I haven't done very much of because I hate it. But if you like what we're doing, uh, please rate us on whatever podcast app you use, like iTunes or I don't know if you can do it on Google, but certainly Spotify and iTunes you can. I think Stitcher, whatever. If your podcast app allows for ratings, please rate us because it helps people... Learn about us, the algorithms and whatnot. All right, everyone. Have a great rest of the week. Bye.
1: Teresa, I'm sorry.